Support for the Northwards podcast comes from St. Lawrence University, where a strong liberal arts tradition with real-world applications equips students to solve 21st century challenges. stlawu.edu I'm going to name drop here. Steve Martin, David Sedaris, Liz Fair, Hilary Hahn, the Fonz. These are all pretty famous people I've had a chance to interview, and they were all pretty great to talk to. But over the years, some of my favorite chats have been with really neat people doing really neat things, but who are almost entirely under the radar. You might run into them at the Stewart's or the Kinney Drug, but have no idea about what they're up to. On this episode of Northwards, three interviews that celebrate those folks just up the road doing stuff we ought to hear about. A guy who left his job at a nursing home to see the rest of the country and draw caricatures. A couple of folks who moved to the region and are building a drink company from the ground up. And a guy using artificial intelligence to picture Adirondack history in a way that's both familiar and fresh. Northwards is coming your way next from North Country Public Radio. This is Northwards, the monthly interview show coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. To say the history of the North Country is filled with colorful characters is maybe an understatement. The people, explorers, loggers, entrepreneurs, and others who came here over the last couple hundred years have had many tales to tell. Some of them were tall tales. Some of them were even taller. There are characters that have captured the imagination of Doug Smith for a long time. Smith is an artist and software engineer who lives in Vermont, and for the last several months, he's connected his talents in art and technology with his love for Adirondack lore to breathe new life into some mythical North Country names. Smith is the creator of an Instagram feed called ADK Legends, his stunningly beautiful and often funny depictions of Adirondack history makers and the tales they told. It's definitely worth a look while you're listening right now. Doug Smith joins us on the line from Vermont. Welcome to Northwards. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mitch. Excited to be here. So who are these people that inhabit this parallel universe and and where did they come from? (laughs) Uh, These people are uh, generally folks that I think are legendary from the history of the Adirondacks, and it's kind of my imagination and portrayal of uh, these people, places, and things from a place and people that I truly do love. Do these these little vignettes, the the snippets of of would be Adirondack history, do they they come do they come to you individually, or do you have some bigger picture in your head that is coming out piece by piece? You know what? There's a little of both. Um, Certainly, I find moments of inspiration that I draw from, but I certainly have uh, certain pieces of Adirondack history that have uh, highly spoken to me. And I'm also kind of letting uh, some of these stories develop as they may. Um, So one of my absolute favorites from going way, way back is... (laughs) Uh, Adirondack French Louis. When I really was first kind of exposed to the Adirondacks, uh, some of my friends were rather excited about uh, French Louis and it got me to read the book and 
uh, of course, my buddies would uh, use all of the sweet French Louis quotes like <laughs> "bada holy fish" and everything like that. And I uh, always just thought he was awesome, and it'd be the kind of things when I didn't really want to be at my desk, and I'd rather be out fishing in the Adirondacks. And I'm like, man, French Louis just had it all figured out, <laughs> and. He's just like such a cool, colorful kind of character that was loved by people. And he just lived a really kind of liberated life. He'd come into town and he'd go on what he called a spree and uh, and blow all of his uh, trapping <laughs> money and cash. So, yes, French Louis is kind of one of my favorites and sort of a storyline that I'm developing. And, yeah, I spend a good amount of time kind of piling through whatever history I can get my hands on and then trying to find these just interesting tidbits and kind of exploring them and seeing um, what developed from there. Uh, another thing that I'm kind of finding through my audience is that some people really connect with some of the things I've been able to portray. And I've had a few kind of members of my audience get in touch with me and want to share about, you know, the history that they're connected to. And it's really been some of the most satisfying part of the project. So two in particular, uh, a woman who is associated with the Perkins family of Perkins Clearing, which were also good friends of French Louis, um, <laughs> shared with me some material from their family history, and it's just very interesting. And then also some descendants of Mitchell Sabatis, who was a renowned guide also shared with me some of their family history and it's just given me like an extra depth to explore and it's just been really awesome to see people kind of inspired about their own histories and as in turn sparked quite a bit of interest for me. Do, do you feel like you're you're creating the history that you wish were true? I mean the, the the I mean there are obviously grains of truth to to what you're drawing, but you take, you know, enormous liberties with them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh for sure I embrace the fact that uh what I'm creating is in many ways an idealized um history. In fact, one uh book that I've been rather inspired by is by Adirondack Murray, who was a preacher who wrote a book in the mid to late 1800s about the Adirondacks. And I guess the book is controversial in its own way, but it's also uh, rather idealized. And um, I really connected with it in a lot of ways because I could see that Adirondack Murray loved the Adirondacks. And he also had a little bit of a flair for making things sometimes maybe cooler, maybe cooler <laughs> than they were. Um, maybe more from a sort of uh, realistic side of it is some of the works by Seneca Ray Stoddard, um, a photographer, but also an author. I've really drawn a lot of inspiration from his work as well. If if we were to take a look at the the era that you most frequently chronicle, it feels like it's the the Gilded Age. Absolutely, yes. I uh, definitely feel like there's a lot of some of my like 
favorite things to depict that come out of this, yeah, the Gilded Age from what I would roughly guess to be like 1870 to like 1900-ish, where you've got the great camps are happening, the like vacation boom is happening where people are traveling up there. And certainly there's something kind of interesting that I feel like happens that people are kind of centralized together in places, uh, more so than after the advent of the automobile, where I feel like the history starts to become a little bit more dispersed. Not that it's any less interesting, it's just that it's different. Um, but yeah, I find myself coming back to the 1880s, 1890s quite a bit. I was looking at a lot of the posts and I feel like there's kind of not your posts specifically, but that era has kind of this maybe misguided innocence about it. Absolutely. Yeah, there's certainly um, not always the um, ultimately uh, best things happening. I, I mean, one kind of uh, travesty that I think of is in one of the writings of Nesmuk, he talks about how he's going fishing. It's in the St. Regis canoe area somewhere. And what the guides had decided to do was to go and dump paint over where there was a spring underwater in order to get those fish to get out of that cold water and come up to where <laughs> they could fish for them. And as a fisherman, I was just like, Oh, man, that is just such a tragedy. We know so much more now. Uh, How do you do the art for these pieces? So this is all digital art. All of it is original. And I do use a lot of artificial intelligence generative tools for this art. I have a number of different workflows that I use. So I'll kind of come up with a concept and take the bits and pieces of the history that I know and I will start generating ideas. And I mean, in generative AI art, there are kind of two basic ways to go about it. One of which is from text to image and one of which is called image to image. So for a text to image, you could say something like a drawing of an apple. And these tools will do the best with what the training data that they have to represent a drawing of an apple. So you can start in that way. Or for example, I can actually draw an apple and then show this to my tools. And I may also input text as well and then go from that to the next possible piece. And Absolutely. Part of the inspiration for this project is to kind of level up my ability to use these kind of tools. So I do have a heavy reliance on them. I also use a number of other kind of quote unquote traditional digital art tools. So, you know, like Photoshop or 3D modeling tools. I am a software engineer by trade. And so I am also exploring a lot of the kind of deeper technology of these tools. Um, one particular kind of thing that I have been 
working on is what is called quote unquote training, where I am taking these artificial intelligence generative tools, and then I'm training them on particular concepts that they don't know. So there's a number of things that we would consider like super iconic for the Adirondacks that just aren't in the training data for these tools. So something like an Apple, absolutely in there. There's uh, These tools have been trained on tons of different apples and fruits and everything else. But a pack basket, no. A lean-to, no. So if you were to go and try one of these tools and put in a lean-to, there's a chance that the tool has seen a lean-to before. However, it probably associates it with something that is more generically like a cabin. And you're not going to get exactly an Adirondack lean-to, which every person listening to this show <laughs> is going to know a lean-to if they have seen them. So what I do is I collect a number of images of a pack basket or a lean-to or the concept that I want to train. And I kind of slice and dice this data set. I'll associate kind of captions and words along with it. And then I will input these into computer programs, which are still very much developing. So you need a little bit of software development acumen to use them. And I will have a computer that is specialized that uses a, what's called a GPU, a graphics processing unit, in order to do kind of the like intense mathematics that is needed behind it. And I will let that run and it will train on it over time. Similar to how a person learns, but dissimilar for how a person <laughs> learns, there's kind of a like sweet spot of, of learning. So I'll say, all right, we're going to learn pack baskets for 36 hours. And then at certain epochs, points in time, I will capture a snapshot of what's been learned. And then I will plot it out visually. So I'll get a grid of pack baskets and I'll kind of look through and I'll be like, that's the sweet spot at 18 hours or whatever it may be. At some point they can become overtrained and then they just make everything a pack basket, right? <laughs> so you need some kind of flexibility there. Do you think of yourself as an artist? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, an artist who, who just uses like different tools at his disposal than, than an artist would have in the Gilded Age. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> in the Gilded Age. Well, and it has to be something to, to have these, these characters in your mind, these, these people that you've read about or, or seen or, or what have you, and the idea that you're putting them into these scenes and telling the software to, to do your bidding, and then they're, they're breathed into life in front of you. It is extremely satisfying when it's working it can be very frustrating when it's not um, however i have to say that it really just does kind of scratch an itch for me as a kid when we had our first computer in the house one of the first things i wanted to do with it was to draw and i thought that it was going to make my drawing like a thousand times better um, but this would have been in the year 1988. So you're using DOS and surprise, it did not make my drawing a thousand <laughs> times better. Um, so <laughs> to have tools like this where 
it really can kind of uh, make a multiplier to your ability is really satisfying and interesting to do. It's a lot of fun. You birthed this into the Instagram world uh, just a few months ago with, I, I gather, not any particular fanfare, and it's kind of found this audience. Do you have hopes for where it may go? Is this a, is this a feed you're going to keep up? Is it is it a book someday, a graphic novel? <laughs> yeah. uh, Mitch, that's an awesome question. I've been thinking really hard about what is the next phase of this project. For now, certainly, I expect to keep it up in its current form. It's been a really great motivator to continue to master these kind of tools and gives me like a real application that I can put um, some of my like software development skills towards a kind of um, artistic outlet has just been great. But yeah, I kind of wonder um, where it could go next. I certainly daydream about wouldn't this be awesome as uh, as a movie? Like, wouldn't it be really cool to like sit down and watch like a historical fiction of the Adirondacks? That's the kind of thing over a morning coffee that I'm like, oh, what would I put into this movie? Like, how would it happen? I keep coming back to this idea that's like a bad ripoff of uh Back to the Future 3, like you get into a train and then you're like transported back in time. I'm like, yeah, that would just be awesome. Uh, <laughs> so that's one thing that I think about. The idea of maybe, yeah, like a coffee table book or a graphic novel um, seems like it could be interesting as well. Um, but for now, I'm definitely happy just kind of exploring the storylines that I've got and seeing where these take me. Doug Smith, I'm honored to have uh, gotten a chat with you and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Mitch. I am honored to be on the show and uh, happy to share with everyone. So thank you very much. Doug Smith is a software engineer and artist, and he's the creator of the Instagram feed ADK Legends. You can see a sample and find a link to the feed at ncpr.org northwards. We should mention he is also not the same Doug Smith we interviewed a few months ago, at least not as far as we can tell. Stay tuned. We'll take a quick break. And when we return, meet someone doing art in a lower tech way. We'll talk with Joe Ferris about his caricatures and how they took him across the country recently, far from his home in the Champlain Valley. This is Northwards from NCPR. NCPR's Northwards is supported by Renew Architecture and Design, offering custom design services from the St. Lawrence River Valley to the Adirondacks. More at RenewArchitecture.com. By Brewer Bookstore on Park Street in Canton. Open to the public Monday through Saturday, featuring books, household items, and gifts. BrewerBookstore.com. And by Claxton Hepburn Medical Center and its surgical services team, performing robotic, general, and minimally invasive procedures. ClaxtonHepburn.org. From North Country Public Radio, it's Northwards. I'm Mitch Tyke. There are people in our lives who are good at a little bit of everything. We might call them jacks of all trades, renaissance men or renaissance women, or even polymaths. Or in the case of one guy from Willsboro, just call him Joe Ferris. Ferris is both a visual artist and a musician. He's also used his artistic skills working in a Plattsburgh nursing home and advocating for a neighborhood performance space. 
But for the last couple of months, he was on the road on a solo trek in his car across the country, collecting experiences, meeting people, and sometimes drawing their pictures. The trip and Joe Ferris himself are a great story. Ferris is back in the North Country now, but we reached him one recent morning in the middle of the country before he set out on his way back. Joe Ferris, great to make your acquaintance. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Well, and, and so where is here? Where, where are we reaching you as we're having this conversation? So right now I am in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and so tell us the story of what got you to this point. Why are you, you I mean, you're from uh, Willsboro. Uh, why are you so far from home? So um, I was working a job in Plattsburgh, New York, and uh, I was living in Willsboro. And um, I did that job for four years. And it was a really nice job um, because I was able to use um, some of my uh, my passion for music, you know, I'm a, as well as being an artist, I'm a musician. So I was able to uh, play music with the elderly at uh, at the nursing home. Right. You were you were playing uh, you were playing for uh, for the residents, right? Yep. Yep. Playing music for them. And uh, and so that was a cool job. But um, I did find that it got very repetitive. I felt like I was doing you know, it's like at a certain point, like you want to be challenged. You want to, you know, keep meeting new obstacles within your work and your life. And I found that I wasn't having that experience. I was kind of uh, a bit on a hamster wheel going around and around. And um, so basically I got um, fed up and, you know, I, I did get a little depressed and I said, you know, I, I need I need to make a change. And so uh, art has been a long-term pursuit for me. And uh, it's also something I went to school for. And so I wanted to try out caricatures in different parts of the United States. Uh, let's let's flash back for just a second to to your time okay. at the at the nursing home. Uh, were the residents yeah. understanding? I mean, they they must have had their own like wanderlust and and understanding of your desire to uh, to to you know, light out into the territory, if you will. There was definitely some tears as I was leaving, and and uh, they were on both parts. You know, it wasn't easy for me to say goodbye to a lot of these folks that I had become really attached to. And, you know, I had definitely benefited uh, from, from being close to them and them as well from me. Um, but, uh, but I think there were also residents that wanted me to do what was best for me and wanted me to grow in whatever way I, uh, I saw fit. There was actually a resident um, that gave me some inspiring words that uh, was kind of the leaping off point for me to uh, take this trip. Um, there was a resident named Doris, and uh, she was kind of my <clears throat> regular go-to, almost my my uh, my therapist at work. And, and so I'd go in and chat with her, and she told me, if there's something you want to do, go out and do it don't wait and uh so she convinced me that no time like the present so i went for it 
Do, do you think of Doris while you're out in the world uh, doing these caricatures and, and going from place to place? I do think of her. And um, I think about how when I get back to the North Country, I'm going to visit her. So when did you leave? I left the day before Easter. So April, I think, 8th. And aside from uh, knowing that you're going to be drawing caricatures of folks around the country, what was your plan? Where where did you want to go? And, and, you know, did you have thoughts about why you wanted to see the places you wanted to see? Yeah, it, it was it was definitely a mix. Like, uh, th- there were two main driving forces. One was just places that I wanted to go, you know, that I had heard about and just had a interest in. And then the other aspect was um, where where could I make money? Where could I uh, you know make some income and uh, draw caricatures to uh, to raise some money to put gas in the car and food you know food in my car as well. Well, so so where have you been so far? I'm gonna try to name them all. <laughs> um, I, I think of, I think of the Johnny Cash song every time uh, somebody asks me. I've, I've been, I've been everywhere, man. Um, so I've been, okay, I started out Louisiana, New Orleans, um, and then uh, Texas, so Austin, Texas, as well as San Antonio, and then Colorado Springs, and then Denver, Colorado, and then Hermiston, Oregon, Salt Lake City, Utah, and then Bellingham, Washington, and then um, I decided to make the big leap to Alaska, but I drove through Canada to get to Alaska. Um, so I stayed stayed in the Yukon in Canada along the Alaskan hide, Highway. And then in Alaska, I was in Skagway, and then I spent most of my time in Juneau, the capital of Alaska, and then I came back and I went to um, Los Angeles, California. <laughs> Do you want me to keep going? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm. I'm. This <laughs> is a, this. This is the world's most interesting itinerary. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> then I went to uh, Los Angeles, California. I went to Hollywood. Uh, I went to Santa Monica, um, and then from there, I went to. Uh, the Grand Canyon in Arizona from the Southern Rim. And uh, I hiked into the Grand Canyon and camped out in there. And then I uh, I went to Las Vegas. Um, and then I went to Amarillo, uh, Texas. And then I went to Nashville, Tennessee, where <laughs> which is where I am. So I am driving a small SUV. It's a Chevy Trax mm-hmm. and uh, it's good on gas, but honestly, I'm jealous of every camper van that goes by. <laughs> that's that's uh, definitely something I could see happening in my future um, because right now when I sleep in the back of my car, which is the way I, I spend the majority of nights, um, my legs are straddling the passenger front seat as I, <laughs> as I lay in the back. So it's, it's been a lot of nights like that. Um, you know, I've got food off to my left um, in in large containers, and then I've got my bed 
you know, on the other side. And I took took the back seats out of the car, so it gave me a little more space. Um, but it's it's a really tight fit. But I've definitely gotten closer uh, closer to my car since <laughs> the beginning of the trip. You know, it's it's kept me safe, so I appreciate that. Well, so I, I, I'm listening to these places, and some of them are obvious tourist destinations where I would imagine it it might be easier to get people who who want to have their their caricatures drawn places like Hollywood and and uh, even maybe the Grand Canyon or uh or Juno uh but then you mentioned places like Bellingham Washington and Hermiston Oregon and uh and I wonder uh you know was it hard to find people in places that that you could uh, ask hey do you want me to draw you yes so, so I will say um, that a couple of those places, okay, so sometimes I stop because I'm exhausted and I can't keep driving um, because, like, I'm falling asleep on the road and I just, like, need a break. And that that would be an example of Hermiston, Oregon. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, it was, it was an interesting place to visit because cause I knew nothing about it. And I was able to, like, go into a hole-in-the-wall uh, bar and restaurant just like order some onion rings and like just have like a very authentic experience and you know it's not set up for extreme tourism which makes it feel more real um which is enjoyable but uh but yeah it's like you know honestly in that situation i didn't even try doing caricatures because i allowed myself a moment um to just relax and and kind of take in the environment that's kind of been the yin and the yang of the trip is like hitting these high tourist destinations and, you know, more bucket list type places and doing caricatures and, and, and like usually is a very vibrant um, city scene. And then on the other side of the spectrum is, is, you know, hiking into the Grand Canyon and like, you know, having a degree of isolation and, and, you know, going out camping and, um, you know, reconnecting with, with forest and nature, which is, you know, more, more, uh, brings me back to the North country, uh, where I grew up. Well, what's the place that has surprised you the most? I would say it's Juneau. Yeah, I would say it's Juneau, Alaska. I had the most experiences there. Um, I got, very very quickly went from a complete stranger to it seemed like a lot of people were talking about me like <laughs> like uh several times I'd go up and be like do you want a caricature and they'd be like oh you're that you're that guy everybody's talking about <laughs> and and I also had my first experience of crowd surfing uh though it was it was in a venue that <laughs> probably nobody had crowd surfed in the past. Um, I, I, I hit a uh, karaoke night and I did a Weezer song, uh, Beverly Hills, which was ironic because I was in Juneau, Alaska. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the song, I, I jumped into the crowd and crowd surfed. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a special moment for me because I'd always wanted to do that, but never, 
never gotten to. When you go up to somebody and ask uh, if you can draw them, uh, you must have to ask them a little bit about themselves to to try to capture who they are in this in this quick drawing. What do you get from the time you spend with these total strangers? Yeah, I, I've uh, I've had a lot of uh, you know connections. That's that's the thing that draws me to characters the most is that you get to connect with all these different people. And it's like, you don't have to follow the artist trope of like complete isolation inside a room at a drafting table. You get to be out in the world, meeting people, like seeing their faces and making friends and like whether they follow you on Instagram or Facebook or, or, you know, you just, you know, just share that one single moment. It's, It's special to be able to see the world like that. Um, and specifically when it comes to, you know, connecting and what I get out of these short-term, often short-term relationships is like, okay, one night in um, Los Angeles, um, I met a couple, like a, a guy and a girl who, who had been together for a while. And they were sitting and they were drinking wine outside a music venue and the music was going and and they like gave me a glass of wine. So so I'm sitting there doing their caricature and I'm having a glass of wine with them. And and you know, they just you know, you you could tell that they were into each other and it's it was just a special moment to be part of. And then like fifteen minutes later I'm doing a caricature of somebody else and it's this young, you know, girl in her twenties and she shares the story of um, the reason she's in California, Los Angeles, is because she had a sister, older sister, who moved out to California and who died in a car accident, uh, very tragically. And I found myself really absorb her trauma, you know, as she talks to me. Um, it was, you know, I and my brother lives out in Los Angeles, so it was even more um, impactful. But but it's like that's what you get. It's like you get the you get the special romances. You're kind of like part of that for a second, and then you also get you know the the sad stories that people have experienced in their lives that have brought them to that moment. So, so you get the good with the bad. But either way, at least you're experiencing you know life and and connecting with the world. In a strange way, it sounds like almost being a, a a bartender with art. I agree. I think a bartender or a hairdresser or anyone who provides a service and like has that immediate connection. Yeah. So between the actual experiences and the the art that you've done, what do you hope you'll bring back to the North Country from from this journey? Well, I'd like to bring back perspective. Perspective that while the North Country is a wonderful place and a good place to live, it's not the only place. And we can also, you know, explore and expand our horizons. And and we've always got the North Country in the background that we can go back to and feel comfort and hopefully be with our families there. Do you feel like you're off of the hamster wheel now? Oh yeah. <laughs> That's something I'm I'm proud of is, is that I definitely recognize that I shook the hamster wheel and even though I'm 
in the less ingrained aspect of society in regards to work, I feel challenged and I feel motivated and I take every day as, as a new challenge. Well, Joe Ferris, much happiness on the road ahead. Thank you. Joe Ferris is from Willsboro. He's a visual artist and a musician. In fact, we're hearing a little of the Green Beans, the band he started with his brother Vinny right now. Ferris recently returned from a multi-month cross-country trip. You can look back on his adventures and follow his new ones through his various social media streams on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. There are links at ncpr.org northwards. One more break, and then we'll meet two people trying to change your hydration habits. And in doing so, they're trying to change the world. This is Northwards from NCPR. Northwards on NCPR is supported by The Book Nook, an independent bookstore located on Broadway and Saranac Lake, on Facebook at SL Book Nook, and by Planned Parenthood, providing confidential supportive counseling, education, advocacy, and a 24-hour hotline through their Sexual Assault Services Program in Clinton, Essex, and Franklin Counties. NCPR is a media sponsor for historic Saranac Lake's new exhibit, Saranac Lake Means Business, now open. More at ncpr.org calendar. More of Northwards Now coming to you from North Country Public Radio. I'm Mitch Tyke. Do you drink enough water? I don't drink enough water unless you count my daily iced coffee, and even then, I still probably don't drink enough water, and yeah, maybe you don't drink enough water either. A couple of guys in Burlington think they've hit on a way for you and me to improve our water drinking habits by adding not just some flavor, but also some fun. What they've created is called Plink, with an exclamation point at the end. It is, and I say this in the best way possible, Kool-Aid meets Alka-Seltzer. That is, it's water flavoring that comes in a tablet and makes your water fizzy. But our story today isn't just about drink technology. It's about these two British guys who live in our part of the world and are trying to build a global brand from the ground up. They're also trying to solve some problems a little bigger than just your water drinking habits. They are Max Luthi and Luke Montgomery Smith. I met them recently at Hula, a co-working space in Burlington, where the roar you hear behind us is a torrential rainstorm outside that started just as our conversation began. Max and Luke, hi. Thank you so much for meeting me. Yeah, our absolute pleasure. Yeah, brilliant. Glad to be able to just sit down and talk about what we're up to at the moment. So what are you up to at the moment? What was the issue you were trying to address by getting Plink to market? You know... I always wanted to, for a long time, wanted to start a beverage company and something was bothering me and it was essentially the recycling bin full of empty cans and and bottles. And just through my previous career, I was advising companies to decarbonize and reduce their packaging. And it just seemed like the drinks industry was still very much in the 20th century. So that's like a long-winded way of saying it felt like the way we were consuming beverages was wasteful. And Plink was a middle-of-the-night realization that I had uh, five years ago, and I had no idea how to create this company, which is uh, where my my co-founder comes in. I previously have been working in beverages, and I love making great-tasting drinks, and I think nothing, you know, tops off a beautiful day like having a sip of a cold drink. But when I heard Max's idea, it was just so simple. 
I was, we need to get this out there in the world. I'd just been shipping a product across the country that was 99% water, basically, um, in flatbed trucks. And when it hit me, this bath bomb you could drink called Plink, I was like, why did we settle on cans and bottles as the best vehicle for having a beverage in this climate crisis? You know, there's got to be a better way of doing things. And I think the more that Max and I spent time together, this was during the, the COVID lockdowns, we kind of riled each other up and we got really into it and we just realized how big and expansive and totally non-trivial the problem was, that it is fully global. So we sort of set about with trying to create this global solution and it is infuriating the problem. There are other drink mixes out there, either concentrated liquids you can you can put into a drink or powders you can put into a drink where did the idea of doing this as uh, a bath bomb or or an alka-seltzer come in uh you know i think for for me it was really fun you know i there's a company called lush um you know who make bath bombs and i was i think i'd been studying for my job i'd been looking at their yellow submarine bath bomb which is this crazy psychedelic thing that turns different colors and spins around in the water and just the experience of something effervescent dissolving in water is one piece of it and the other piece is and Luke can speak to in more detail to this because he's a he's a genius when it comes to flavor and things like that but the the fizziness you know gives you something um, that you don't get from a liquid concentrate or a powder yeah 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 I mean my background in beverages is working it out as I go along you know I'm just a I suppose someone externally would call me a serial entrepreneur I spent years producing large-scale events and festivals and I as I was sort of transitioning and falling out of love with a really wasteful industry I fell in love with kombucha in the US and it was just this really exciting product that was kind of almost alcoholic and really interesting and made your gut feel good and my wife and I launched a kombucha brand in the UK and started producing really high quality kombucha um, and at the same time we set about doing that kind of at scale so we set up a contract kombucha business as well and started really getting into the dark arts slash science of creating great taste so really just like trial and error is how I got into it and just enjoying the process of really trying harder and pushing for better tasting products and when Max told me about the idea why specifically this bath bomb is because I did a deep dive into effervescent tablet technology and I just became increasingly excited about how little innovation there was in the space <laughs> no one was bringing that just desire for it to taste good to be fun i mean yeah. in the 60s there was the i think at one point it was the number two best-selling beverage and like baby boomers love telling us when we when we tell them what we've created they say have you heard of fizzies you know and fizzies were like that's an incredible product in in many ways it's very much ahead of its time i mean actually it's interesting a lot of the consumer packaged goods companies solved these challenges decades ago right they can make detergent in powders they can make it in tablets um, it's really consumers the psychology we like the big plastic bottle full of liquid and so Procter and Gamble and Unilever that they, they make the bottles bigger and more plasticky and shinier and you know that's kind of the mess we've gotten ourselves into and particularly the beverage industry you're just conditioned to think that's how you hydrate. And the beverage industry, the three biggest beverage companies in the world are the top three plastic polluters in 87 countries. And they've held that record for five years. 
So really, it's not necessarily the beverage companies that haven't wanted to do this. There, there hasn't been the demand, so there has been no, no need for them to change. Exactly. I think in, in many respects, what we've realized, why, why, this is, why the time is now? Why bring fizzies back? <laughs> it's not just the environmental movement. You know, we benefit from the sort of Nalgene generation. You know, the most found item on a college campus is a hydro flask, like in the lost and found. Kids today and even grown-ups don't go anywhere. They don't go to the office. They don't go to the gym. People call it their emotional support bottle. So we're now carrying around reusable bottles. We have drinking water in the office, in the campus, etc. And then a lot of people have been using hydration products like Liquid IV and Noon. Uh, and that is really growing. It's growing, almost doubling year on year. So the time is ripe now to say, look, you're already adding something to your water for kind of a very functional reason, you know, let's put something fun in your Nalgene. You know, you deserve it. This could be your beverage experience as yeah. you're hydrating. You don't need to be going cracking through plastic bottles and cans to get that. You can just add the joy to your water. Well, so without getting too food science geeky, uh, you had this epiphany yeah. that you could essentially bring the fizzy back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How did you approach the problem of actually like, doing this and, and creating the product that's in these, these little packages? Um, I did a, just researched effervescent tablet technology. And on a very basic level, it is sodium bicarbonate and citric acid. And when you mix those two things in water, you get a lovely bit of clean chemistry. You get a chemical reaction where you're left with positively charged sodium salts which are your active electrolytes, carbon dioxide, which is the effervescence, the sort of natural fizz, and excess H2O. So it's a really lovely clean product. Once I realized that and started looking at the ingredients lists on all of the other brands, I realized there was an opportunity to start stripping out all of the other elements that aren't necessary to be there and just pack back in things that will create a joyful beverage experience. So I had previously worked in liquid flavors where I could, you know, just keep tweaking ginger and turmeric levels to make the perfect drink. And I had to change that. In powdered flavors, it's very different. You have to get the juice, freeze it rapidly, extract the flavors in the scents and bind them to a maltodextrin. So I had to retrain my palate. Um, but fortunately, across the years, I've made some incredible friends and contacts. So I suppose just trial and error is how we developed the product. And then once we had decided to move to our operations to Burlington and to the US and I had knocked on the door of hundreds of effervescent tablet contract manufacturers and had most of them shut on me because I was trying to do it without plastic. One contract manufacturer believed in us and then it was like we had to start again because they actually had some incredible um, their own formula that they brought to the table which was better than ours from a stability point of view but then we had better flavors so we then had to play around with how can we bring the flavor in without affecting the performance in glass and it was not easy and it ended up uh, Biden reopened the borders on the 8th of November and on the 9th of November Max and I were in the lab and we locked ourselves in a windowless room for 48 hours just iterating constantly to try and get the flavours right and fortunately we got there and let ourselves out of the lab. <laughs> Luke's like um, journey to, to building a business in Vermont looks like the beginning of like an Indiana Jones movie where the airplane you know leaves the red line across the map. He, he moved his family, he sold a houseboat him and his wife and two daughters were living on uh, on the Thames 
and uh, moved to Sweden and then waited for his visa to clear and moved to Vermont. It's a really unusual way to build a business. Aside from wanting to eliminate the the waste, the the plastic Mm -hmm. or the aluminum um, or even the glass, Uh, from the beverage creation, what were you trying to accomplish with the drink itself? What are people looking for when they drink Plink? It's a, it's a great question. And, and it, you know, it kind of varies by people. For some people, it's really, they, are, they have a real personal goal to consume more water, and we help them do that. Like, there's people who, it's funny because as founders, I think both of us actually like plain water as well. <laughs> but there's people who hate plain water and, you know, we, we help them hit their hydration goals. Um, that's probably the less romantic side of the spectrum because, you know, we, ha- we have loftier goals than that. Like, for us, uh, we love it when it's a treat. Because it has electrolytes, you know, there's many different reasons to, to hydrate better. Just a long day on Zoom calls or being a busy parent chasing children around or you did yoga in the morning, or you're a little bit hungover. Um, but often it's really the, the kind of core use case for us. Where I think we're probably happiest when people are plinking for the flavor and the, the experience. Because they want to. I think what's really interesting is like, why, why do we, obviously we eat and drink to stay alive, but beyond that, we're out of survival mode. We do it because we enjoy it. And one of the things that we were really excited by was like, what about the function of joy? Everything started to feel very much like if my Instagram feed makes me think I have to have 30 different tablets a day and all kind of nootropics and I've got to drink mushrooms in order to, to keep up mushrooms. with the rest. You've got to drink mushrooms, you've got to blend your kale, you've got to shake all, your, all of these. your oils up. I don't even know. It's like there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of joyless. And sure, it's aspirational and all this stuff, but it's like, what about just having a drink? And I think we loved, you know, Max was really passionate about beverage marketing and we love the bigger beverage brands just all are based around sharing a moment and joy and we wanted to to bring back that slightly less functional feeling around beverages and when we are most happy we find people plinking just because they felt like it everyone has a beverages that are attached to a time and place like orangina i think is really for for a lot of brits is like really much associated with when you're on vacation and the feel of the the kind of textured glass bottle and the flavor and I can I can tell you where I'm sitting when I'm having an orangina. It's not here, you know. And there's so many different beverages like that in our in our lives. So I think that that is a combination of the product. It's a combination of the storytelling around the brand, and it's just a really fun place to be in. You were developing this while the pandemic was going on, and I, you know, without getting too heavy, there seems like there's some catharsis wrapped around like enjoying something mm. that you might otherwise you yeah. otherwise take for granted. But that was actually explicit. We did talk about that. We did say now is a no better time to bring a really joyful brand to market. Yeah. It's a time to just to celebrate something that ha- that can be positive on so many different levels. And we have this slightly lofty, almost heavy, big ambition about changing the way the world consumes beverages. But we always knew that we couldn't beat people over the head about the fact that they tr- like drink a bottle of Coca-Cola. So how can you do it? Is you just inject joy. If this was, say, like the elite performance drink for, you know, like some crazy, serious, hardcore product that just was taking itself so seriously, I think it would be harder to, this is, it's hard to build a beverage company. Very, very hard. I might have underestimated that. And if I wasn't waking up and it wasn't almost this warm, glowing presence, uh, I would find it a lot harder. 
we hear a lot that the beverage industry is really hard. What makes it so hard? Why, why is it t- such a tough nut to crack? Building a brand is hard from scratch. Beverage is particularly hard for a number of reasons. One of them is that the business model is actually has slightly been broken by the fact that it hasn't been innovated for so long. So it is a low margin product that is very heavy and has to be shipped around on pallets and flatbeds around around the country. So that suits the incumbents, the big brands that have those distribution lines and makes it harder to break for the smaller businesses. But that's another reason why Plink is so exciting as a business, because we have a product that is, you know, it's 99% less packaging because there's no water in it. It's so much lighter. It You're is not, the tenth of the trucks. And we're not competing for fridge space, which is yeah. one of the like most competitive spots. You know, you can put us like right by the cash register. We're pretty flexible. We'll go wherever you want, as long as you put us in your store. <laughs> so what has been the biggest challenge that you either are still coping with or you've managed to, to get past? I think... Um, Given my background, which was a lot about advising other companies on brand strategy, uh, you know, for me, there was a lot of learning about what sounds great and convincing on paper. You know, when you model out your customer acquisition or you model out your growth strategy, etc., then you're faced with the realities of, you know, the actual cost of goods or finding a distributor or finding a retailer or winning over the right price point or your website. You know, it's just real life. You know, it's basically... It might sound good on paper, but actually executing it, just it's, it's a grind. And I think, you know, especially when we're both very ambitious with this business, we want it to be a global brand. You need to celebrate. We have so many wins under our belt at this point that we need to celebrate them, even though we feel like we're at, you know, 0.5% of the way through where we're aiming to get with this business. If we can make people happy without destroying their health, that's a pretty big goal is on top of the environmental benefits. Yeah. Max, Luke, thank you both so much. Uh, And best of luck. Thank Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I I see it as a positive omen that our our tagline is, you bring the water, and we've been doing this recording in a torrential storm. (laughs) I think that says good things for the future. I believe so too. Max Luthi and Luke Montgomery-Smith are the founders of a Burlington-based company called Plink. You can find out more and see some Plink in action at ncpr.org slash northwards. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of Northwards. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Northwards podcast and get an episode delivered to you every Friday from the comfort of your phone or your computer or your smart speaker. And you can subscribe to the Northwards column delivered to you in newsletter form every weekend. Find them all at ncpr.org. Digital oversight of the show comes from Ethan Shanty and Bill Hanel. Caitlin Kelly does our social media. Doyle Dean shoots video. And I am Mitch Tyke, your humble host and producer. Thank you so much for listening. Here and Now is next on NCPR, followed by Science Friday and the Beat Authority. Have a great weekend.